receive it with joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 10 is where we're going to be this morning as we keep going with the topic of hope. Our, our text this morning, as I just said, comes from the letter to the Hebrews. And the letter to the Hebrews as a whole has one major theme. And that theme is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood of Aaron. He's better than the multitude of sacrifices that were offered in times past. There is nothing that compares with Jesus. There's no one who compares with Jesus. Christ Jesus, our maker, savior, and Lord, is of surpassing value. He's above and beyond everyone and everything else. And by the time you get in the book of Hebrews to chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, that fact has been well established. But before we actually dive into our text for this morning, we should note that the first word of verse 19 is, therefore. And I've noted in the past, and I will note many times again in the future, that if you see the word, therefore, when you are reading in your Bible, or really anything, but especially in your Bible, you should ask, what is it? Therefore, therefore is always pointing back to a previous point or a previous argument or a previous story, something that lays the foundation for what the writer is about to say, what he's about to tell you. So before we jump ahead of ourselves and and dig down into verses 19 through 25, we should at least get kind of a, a passing basic understanding of the first half of Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 1 through 4, the author explains that the old sacrificial system, the system that was set up in the law given by God through Moses, that sacrificial system was a shadow. Though those sacrifices were good, God commanded them, they couldn't actually accomplish the goal of removing sin. And we know that because they had to be offered year after year after year. So Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The writer then goes on to explain that when Jesus came... He came in order to do away with that sacrifice. That's because while sacrifice for sin is required, sacrifice itself is not what God desires. What God desires is not a continual bloodbath of offerings to pay for sins, but a changed heart that chooses not to sin. What God wants from you is not blood sacrifices. What he wants is a heart that loves and obeys him. But that's only possible if someone pays the debt of sin that you already owe to God. And then having forgiven us, gives us that new heart, that changed heart. Verse 5 and following says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus does the will of the Father by once for all offering up the true and final sacrifice for sin. The one-time payment that Jesus made was enough to cover the sin of the whole world. It does not get repeated over and over and over again. It was once for all. And how can we know this? Because when Jesus left this earth and went back to his father, he sat down. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in, in the Old Testament, priests went to the altar day after day after day, and blood was shed year after year after year in faith that God would accept that offering, that sacrifice of bull and goat and pigeon and all other kinds of blood to cover, to atone for the sins of the people. And when offered rightly, when offered in obedience to God with a heart of faith, God did accept that sacrifice as a covering. But but while that blood covered the sin, it could not take away the sin. And so they were continually in need of going back to the altar, back to the altar, back to the altar over decades and centuries, even thousands of years. Jesus, on the other hand, offered one sacrifice for sins. And that sacrifice was so sufficient that he does not stand before the altar ministering that sacrifice. He ascended back to the Father and sat down at the Father's right hand. In Christian theology, this is called the session of Christ. His, he is seated in the words of the Apostles' Creed at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead, which is basically what the author of Hebrews has just said here. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about waiting for all of the enemies to be put under his feet, which the author of Hebrews just said, that, that last enemy to be defeated is death. So when Christ returns and the dead are raised... All of his enemies will be under his feet. Until that day, until he comes to judge the living and the dead, he sits at the Father's right hand, having completed all that is necessary for our salvation. His work of salvation is accomplished. The perfection of those who draw near, as it says in verse 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being set apart. That perfection is final. We haven't experienced it all yet, but the work is done. 
Jesus has done all that is necessary for that to take place. There's no more sacrifice to be made. We don't need a priest to offer sacrifices for us. We don't need to offer sacrifices. Jesus offered all the sacrifice that is needed. And we can see evidence of this at work in our lives, even now, if we are believers in Jesus. Verse 15, Hebrews 10. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, the sins and the lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you've trusted in Jesus and he has washed away your sin, you don't need any more sacrifice. He paid it all. If you've trusted in Jesus, there's no more sacrifice to make. He doesn't need to do anything more for you to be saved, and neither do you. There's no more offering to be made because his offering was enough. His sacrifice is enough. Jesus is enough. Which brings us to the topic of the text before us. So remember that over these five weeks, kind of the the topic that's framing our thinking is the topic of hope. And in verse 23, the writer speaks of hope. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. In this text, what we confess is the content of our hope. When we speak of the word confession, usually what we think of is like a whole list of things that we've done wrong, and we confess those to God, or we confess those to another person. That's not what the Hebrew the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. That's not the kind of confession he means. He means confession as in a positive articulation of what we believe. Uh, in, the, in the Reformation, a lot of the, the Protestant reformers wrote confessions of faith, and they weren't saying, we're sorry that we did this, or we're sorry that we believe this, but it was a positive statement, like a statement of faith. That, that's what they mean by confession. So there's the Heidelberg Confession, the Westminster Confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, like all these articulations of the Christian faith in positive terms. And in verses 19 to 22, the writer to the Hebrews gives us a very concise confession of faith that we cling to, that is the content of our hope. Two truths that give us lasting hope. So we'll look at those two truths, and then we'll look at two responses which these truths demand from us. First, we confess that we have access to God through Jesus. Verses 19 through part of 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. All all that the writer gave us in verses 1 through 18 was a preface to this great truth. Because Jesus' sacrifice was powerful and authoritative and sufficient, we now have access to God the Father through him. We We don't just have the opportunity for access. It's not just possible. It's not a maybe. But those who trust in Christ have sure access to the Father. Verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, what does he mean by holy places? 
remember the early part of the chapter, chapter 10, is talking about the Old Old Testament sacrificial system. So our minds should immediately go back to the, the tabernacle and then the temple. And in the tabernacle and the temple both, there was a holy place where only the priests could go in. And then there was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And that only after the strictest of cleansing procedures and getting ready for that moment. This was not like general, all-purpose access. You can get in anytime you want. No, one man, once a year, after a strict procedure. Even those who were allowed access, it was they had to have like a grave and serious attitude because their life was on the line. If they were not clean when they went into the presence of the Lord, they had a right. They were right to expect that the the Lord, the holiness of God, would consume them. Humanity was created, we read in Genesis, to live in the presence of God. But this side of the fall, east of Eden, as it were, we can't be near him without being consumed. Even Moses, probably about as holy a man as you're going to find in the Old Testament, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. If our sins are not dealt with, we have a right we, we are right to have a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what verse 27 of Hebrews 10 says. But if verse 18 is right, that for those who have trusted in Christ, our sins have been dealt with. They are paid for. They are gone in God's mind. Then the fear should be removed. Fear of the Lord is necessary. It leads us to see our need for repentance and faith. But for those who have thus feared him, Feared him so much that we repented of our sins and said, please forgive me, Father. I deserve your wrath, but I believe that you have paid the price of your own wrath with the life of your son. We can now approach him with confidence. Do you have that kind of confidence before God? Uh, Today, we have celebrating Father's Day. Some of us had bad earthly dads who were abusive or absent. Others had dads who were trying but just seemed distant a long ways away. And others had dads who welcomed them with open arms. While no earthly father is perfect, the example we see in the heavenly father is of one who welcomes us into his presence. He made us to dwell with him. And after we ruined that by our sin, as we rebelled, we rejected him He came towards us, paying the price of his eternal son, so that through him he might have more sons and daughters for all of eternity. Verse 20 says that we have access through the curtain of Jesus' flesh, that as Jesus' body was broken on the cross in our place for our sins, the barrier between God and man was ripped from top to bottom. As Jesus' body was broken on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. God tore open the way to access to him. Thus, we not only have access, but but he who is the way into the presence of God, Jesus himself, sits at the Father's right hand as a witness to the finality of his sacrifice. He is our high priest before the Father. That's what verse 21 says. 
Elsewhere in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Hebrews 7, 23 through 28, also talk about Jesus being our high priest who's, who's before the Father for us. Do you know that if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, your place with the Father is just as secure as that of Jesus himself? In his book, Enjoying God, Tim Chester puts it this way. As long as Jesus has the Father's approval. So think about it. As long as Jesus has the Father's approval. How long is that? We have the Father's approval. Because we are united by faith to Jesus. That truth should give us confidence to come before the Father. He is just as happy for us to come as he is for Jesus to be there. We confess that through Jesus we have access to the Father Not the access of a visitor, but the access of a beloved child. How is that possible? The second aspect of our confession here in Hebrews 10 is that we have access to the Father because by Jesus' blood we have been cleansed. We confess that Jesus' blood has cleansed us. We see that in verse 19. We have access by the blood of Jesus. And again, note the contrast with the Old Testament, the improvement from the Old Testament, where the priests had access on the basis of a substitutionary animal. The priest had to be sprinkled with blood, and then he went into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat. We have a substitute, too, but it's not a bull or a goat. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As I noted earlier, the high priest once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of God. But verse 22 says now that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sin has been dealt with by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood on our hearts. This is an interesting phrase. He says our hearts are sprinkled with blood in order to be clean. Those of you who have done any laundry over the years, I think probably especially for little boys, know that blood doesn't generally make things clean. Blood stains, blood soaks in, blood ruins all kinds of clothes or towels or whatever else it gets on. But Jesus' blood is different. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And then over in Revelation chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Jesus' blood doesn't stain us. Our sin stains us. Jesus washes us clean of our filth, clean of our impurity, clean of our sin. 
And because of this, we can approach the Father not only with the confidence of verse 19, but with a true and pure heart. It is not pride to boldly come before God when we come with hearts that are washed by Jesus' blood. Verse 22 commands us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you have full assurance of faith? Many Christian traditions throughout the centuries have taught that you can't have assurance of faith. Uh, The Council of Trent in 1543 condemned anyone who taught that you could have assurance of faith. Many, Many brothers and sisters in the Wesleyan tradition don't believe that you can have true assurance of faith, that that maybe you can lose your faith. But that is contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. We are supposed to have assurance of our faith. That's what the writer says here in black and white terms. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That full assurance does not come because we have confidence that we are sufficient or that we are worthy. We aren't. If it were up to us to keep or lose our salvation, we would lose it. Absolutely. We shouldn't have any confidence in ourselves. But it's not up to us. Jesus says in John 6, I quoted John 10 last week, he says basically the same thing in John 6. That if we come to him, he will by no means cast us out. It is Jesus who cleansed us, Jesus who brought us into the Holy of Holies, Jesus who brought us into the presence of the Father. None of it depends on us. You realize that's even the point of baptism? Verse 22 here, he says, our bodies are washed with pure water. Well, baptism doesn't have any magical or mystic power to remove sin. It symbolizes our burial with Christ into his death, into his blood, and marks a visible entrance into his people, the church. And this is why we teach that baptism is for believers in Jesus Christ and not babies, because babies aren't capable of faith. Thus, they can't be united to Jesus by faith. But for those who have been united to Jesus by faith, he commands that we be baptized visibly professing your connection to his life, death, and resurrection. So if you haven't done that, you should do that. It's what he commands. So we confess that Jesus gives us access to the Father and that he does this by cleansing us with his blood. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the hope that we confess. So how do we respond? The first response is to keep holding on. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We hang on tight to Jesus. There are so many things in this world that are capable of distracting us from Jesus. The daily needs of our families and of work, The media blaring at us through our TV screen and through our laptop and through our smartphone screen. The sin in our hearts that still nags at us, it's still present, makes us feel like maybe God doesn't want us. Why would Jesus want to be close to us? Why would he want to be in my nasty presence? 
I know not very many people listen to AM radio anymore, but you probably all are still familiar with the idea of static coming through the radio. <clears throat> you, when I was a kid, we still had old enough cars that it didn't even have like a digital face on it, the, the radio. It would just had the line with the numbers like 1400, 1100, et cetera. And you would struggle as you're driving down the road. And for us, like driving down the road at highway speeds on these windy roads with no guardrails, <laughs> you'd be messing with the radio as you're going, trying to get that static to go away and to actually get it tuned in. And it was it was a pain. You're trying to hear exactly what's going on. I mean, here it'd be like 1412 KLEM or 1410 KLEM. 1410, right? Yeah. Uh, back home, I was always listening to 920 KXLY. When you finally would get to the point where you had everything tuned in just right, now it's coming in loud and clear, and you can hear whether it's your, for me, like the Mariners game or whatever talk radio host I was trying to listen to, you'd get it tuned just right, and then you'd hit a pothole, and it would jar it, and now it's all fuzzy again. You lost, you lost the clarity that you were seeking. Life is a lot like that. It can seem hard to hear what God is saying, even with the Bible laying open right in front of us. So many other thoughts are crowding in, telling us you need to perform in this way. You need to measure up over here. You need to be outraged by this. You need to perform excellently at that. You cannot forget these things. Somewhere in the static, we forget who we are. Beloved children of the almighty God with hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of his son. We forget that Jesus is the center of our life, our ballast, our only hope, the one who gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. If you try to anchor your soul anywhere else, you will be sorely disappointed. So tie your soul to Jesus. Hold fast to him without wavering. He alone is faithful. But how do you do that? How do you tie yourself off to Jesus? The short answer is we respond to what Jesus has done. We respond to our confession by tying ourselves to the church, his body, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Cutting through the static of life, getting the radio dial correctly tuned is impossible on your own. So many people who end up walking away from the faith go through this progression. They encounter some kind of difficulty, a difficulty with a relationship in the church, maybe a, a difficulty in their own life, a, a sin struggle or just a hardship. They feel too embarrassed to share that struggle or they share it and don't get the response that they hope for. So then they withdraw from Christian fellowship. And then being disconnected from fellowship, they feel distant from God. And feeling distant from God, they decide that either he isn't real or that he doesn't care. And so they walk away from the faith. How does the writer to the Hebrews tell us to cut that pattern off, to, to stop it from getting to that point? He says to stay connected. Let us consider how to stir one another up, to spur one another on, some translations say. The, the word there literally means to incite, like to incite a riot 
It's used that way in the book of Acts, but here it's used positively to incite one another to love and good deeds. How do you get other people to move towards what God wants for them? That takes hard thought and effort. How can you encourage another believer in their faith? Who are you encouraging towards Jesus? Who are you encouraging to live life more like Jesus would have them live? How can you help someone else in their process of growing in the faith? You should have an answer to that question or think, start thinking about an answer to that question. One of the ways we cut through the static and hear Jesus is, first of all, by obeying what we already know and then helping others to do the same. Are you willing to prod others and be prodded yourself? That's the really uncomfortable part, being prodded by others towards Jesus. One requirement of this spurring along in good deeds is that we're actually together. This isn't something that can happen outside the context of real-life relationships. As good as they may be, Christian radio, sermons on the internet, church live streams, they aren't the same thing as real-life church. Though the writer was aware, even in his own time, of some people who made a habit of neglecting Christian fellowship, he says this should not be our habit. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Instead, the opposite of that is we meet together. The Greek word seems to imply a formal gathering, like Sunday worship. It includes more informal times of gathering to pray, read scripture, share meals, or just enjoy time with other Christians. But even those things, as important as they are, are secondary to publicly gathering together to sit under the word, sing together, as Colossians 3 says, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and lifting our hearts together to the Lord in prayer. We don't gather as a work. We gather to worship and hear from the Lord together and then spur one another on to live lives outside the gathering that are marked by the good works which bring glory to the Lord. And there's a sense of urgency to this in this text. The end of verse 25 says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. There are so many believers who get hooked on books about the end times, signs of the times, wondering when will Jesus come back. There's a lot of money to be made in writing those kinds of sensational books. But the clear teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus could come back anytime and that we ought to be ready. But you don't get ready by reading every news article that comes out of the Middle East or purchasing vast quantities of food to shove in your basement by worrying. We get ready by living the sort of lives Scripture tells us to live. We honor authority. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We work diligently at our jobs and are honest with our money. We give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. We raise our children in homes where he is worshipped and served. We discipline our children and we tuck them in at night. We take a meal to someone in grief. We write a note to someone in need of encouragement. We pray for one another, bearing one another's burdens. And we gather week by week to praise the Lord, hear his word, and then spend the rest of the week trying to put that into practice. That's how we get ready for the Lord's return. It's nothing fancy. It's just the normal Christian life is how we get ready 
for Christ to come back. Not one of those things makes us right with God. But they are the markers of belief that we want to see in our lives if we claim to love and follow Jesus. It's really pretty simple. But as simple as it is, it is very hard. It's easy to understand, but it can be hard to do. Hard to remember that Jesus paid it all. Hard to remember that I have nothing to prove. Hard to remember that of all the priorities the world wants to shove my way, he just says, if you love me, obey me. Just obey Jesus. We have a hard time with that, and so we need one another. We need one another to remind us of who Jesus is and the access we have to God through him. And we need one another to keep encouraging us to live lives that put him on display. A hopeful life is a Jesus-shaped life, and that life is lived in community with his body, the church. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your help to live that kind of life. We naturally want to depend on ourselves, to count on ourselves and our abilities and our intelligence and our ability to get through and to make ourselves right. And we can't do it. Help us to lean on your son, Jesus, who paid for all of our sins, gives us access directly to you. The only reason I can stand here right now and pray to you, Father, is because of what Jesus has done in my place and in all of our place. Help us to keep that in the front of our minds and then to live lives that honor him and reflect him, encouraging one another, gathering together and encouraging each other to live lives that are obedient to you, we pray in his precious name. Amen.